0: Welcome to Waterloop. This is Travis. Very excited to be talking about the Mississippi River today and the Mississippi Rivers and Towns Initiative with Colin Wellenkamp. He is the executive director. Colin, thanks for coming on the podcast.
1: I'm happy to be here, Travis. Thank you for having us.
0: Yeah. Before we dive into the initiative itself, could you talk about this, about the Mississippi Rivers and Towns, just these places and, and, and what they're like
1: Sure. Uh, The Mississippi River Cities and Towns Initiative is comprised of 100 cities uh, along the Mississippi River main stem uh, from the top of the river, which is uh, Headwaters. The first city on the river is Bemidji, Minnesota, all the way to the last one, New Orleans, Louisiana, and 98 of their closest friends in between through all 10 states. And uh, we have seven cities in the association that are above 100,000 in population. Um, And the rest of the 92 cities are below 100,000. So our largest city is Memphis, Tennessee uh, with about 638,000 folks. And our smallest city is Kimswick, Missouri. Uh, actually, not too far from Memphis, north of Memphis, with uh, 164 people. So there is a quite wow. of a, a broad spectrum. Our our largest MSA is the Twin Cities MSA, the Metropolitan Statistical Area of 3.2 million people, and uh, everything else uh, you can you can think of from La Crosse, Wisconsin, with across Wisconsin of about 55,000 to st. Cloud Minnesota 60,000 um, and um, you know a lot of our smaller towns Tiptonville Tennessee Caruthersville Missouri Hickman Kentucky all around the 2,000 person mark uh, in population but uh, all very valuable and all great places to be when did, when did this
0: uh, initiative begin and, and you start to have cities be part of this?
1: We started in February of 2012. Uh, we actually, uh, serendipitously enough, we started on the feast day of St. Julian the Hospitaller, which is the only, only patron saint of rivers. And that was, uh, that was by accident, <laughs> and, uh, or, or not accident, depending on how you look at it. And uh, so St. Julian's been with us ever since the beginning. And that year was a a heck of a year. We actually came together in the midst of catastrophe. Uh, If if folks recall, 2012, we were in the midst of a 50-year drought. Uh, We also sustained Hurricane Isaac, which was a hurricane that uniquely went all the way up the Mississippi River, all the way to northern Iowa. Um, it, It actually its path was along the river. And, um, 2011, the year before that, we had just, uh, gone through a 500 year flood event mm-hmm. in the uh, lower Mississippi river. So our, our mayors came together in the midst of all that.
0: What, what were really the drivers? I mean, those were amazing events. You don't get a hurricane, go up the Mississippi uh, very often, but aside from those events, what, what catalyzed this? What, what, you know, what was the reasoning to, to bring these cities and towns together formally in this way?
1: Well, we had, um, like I said, 2011 was a, a, a big year and 2012 brought its own problems. And then we also 10 years for 10 years before that, there was an association of mayors along the Great Lakes on both sides, in Canada and the United States, that had been together as an association for a decade to that point, and had been very successful, able to make strides in revamping their economy, renegotiating a new trade agreement with Canada, and bringing new national attention to the Great Lakes as a a significant ecosystem uh, and environmental asset to both countries. So our mayors saw that, and what could be done, the Mississippi River was suffering from similar situations um, in terms of economies vastly out of scale, uh, raw, uh, wrong priorities in, subsidi- uh, in subsidizing this over that, and uh, no real plan for the entire corridor. You, everyone wanted to divide the river up into pieces either the upper and lower stem or upper, middle, and lower, mm. or by certain states. And our mayors saw a lot more value and uh, practicality in actually approaching the river as one corridor, all 10 states, uh, unifying their voice together in one chorus. Hmm. Wow. Wow. Uh- could you talk a little bit more
0: about the challenges that these cities and towns face, what, what their common challenges are uh, up and down the river?
1: Sure. So uh, they all are dealing with uh, climate impacts of uh, various significance. So up in our northern cities, uh, intense heat is a serious problem. Mm. Um, that's because you're dealing with populations that typically haven't had to address uh, heat, intense heat over long periods of time. Uh, a lot of the population does not have air conditioning or climate control, never needed it before. Uh, until now uh, this is especially true for the elderly and disabled and, um, and uh, the youth that are vulnerable to to heat. Infrastructure too, uh, you increase the stress on infrastructure by 25 to 30% with prolonged exposure to intense heat. Hmm. And uh, so in our northern northern cities, that's a big problem. Then you get into the middle of the Mississippi River on down, uh, you've got a number of problems. Drought, uh, major flood events, And then the lower part of the river, you have um, not as much drought, but you have major storms, including named storms. So so this year we've gone through seven named storms. New record, one year after the largest flood in U.S. history ever recorded, largest and longest uh, in 2019. And that was on the heels of a 1,000 year rain event in 2016 in Louisiana. And a 200-year flood in the middle reaches of the Mississippi River, also in 2016, um, all on the heels of what happened in 20, uh, 2012. So it's it's back to back to back uh, implications that you know normally these events would be 25, 30 years apart. They're now happening every year, every two years, or they just never stop. So 2019, we had a flood that lasted for nine months. 270 consecutive days of flooding whole new national record um it was just absolutely uh, amazing where where was that where was that area um so that was varying degrees from red wing minnesota to new orleans mm. <laughs> so yeah the, the whole way up and down there wow yeah incredible
0: yeah. um well, that's very interesting to hear so much focus on the impacts of, of climate change and the extreme weather that comes with it, the heat, the rains, the, the hurricanes. Um, you know, a lot of people, I think, with climate change, they think about uh, what's happening along the coasts, they think about the drought in the west, um, and don't think maybe as much about that that middle of the country, that Mississippi River corridor, and the impacts that are being seen there. So... I'm glad you shared that information and certainly the mayors of these towns and cities are, are acutely aware of what's happening. So what is the Mississippian River and Towns Initiative? What are your kind of programs? What's your and, – and your overall kind of focus?
1: Right. We split our work up into five program areas. They're not in any particular priority order. One is clean water two is disaster resilience and adaptation, three international food and water security, four sustainable economies, and five heritage culture and history of of the river valley. And all five of those programs have various goals and projects within them, spending lines, Uh, where our our mayors are trying to uh, really bring national attention and resources back to the Mississippi River Valley because of its importance on the the nation's economy and the uh, ecological asset that it is. Our annual revenue directly generated off the Mississippi River is uh, 5% of U.S. GDP.
0: Wow, I had never heard that before. That's a, a huge number for that for that river. So those programs you talked about and, and your overall initiative, you talked about trying to bring resources back to these cities and towns and, and the states that they're in. Is that a big focus? Is really working with Washington and federal agencies and trying to trying to get those kind of financial resources, the pro, the the programs, projects, policies that that are going to support these rivers and towns. That that federal piece is a big part.
1: It is a big part. Um our states are also a considerable part of it. It's just as an association, we don't have the staff um within MRCTI to really uh, orchestrate state by state campaigns. We would if we could and if we had that budget we would totally do it. It's just we're we're not there yet. Um, and so we focus on the federal government and when you're talking about the uh, amount of uh, export, import commodities that go up and down the Mississippi River and the freshwater economy that the river generates and supports, uh, it becomes very much a federal question. And there are no such thing as, as earmarks anymore. So everything we approach, we have to do in the, in the position of a national program and national spending. And then, of course, like everybody else in the country, we have to go in and compete for a piece of that through grant dollars um, and otherwise, and that that becomes rigorous. And but we we believe too that we have proposed some significant policy changes to the way that the United States as a country addresses uh, or, or doesn't address or have a plan for drought uh natural infrastructure deployment uh or consideration of ROI of certain river related assets
0: interesting could you talk a little bit more about a couple of those areas there you mentioned uh trying to get some changes on policy around drought around natural infrastructure um I'd like to hear a little bit more that's that's interesting
1: Yeah, so, you know, uh, authority on spending federal money with drought was spread out over several agencies. Uh, You couldn't, until a few years ago, you could not spend FEMA money addressing drought. Uh, Now you can, but even now it's still relatively difficult. And there's still a lot of questions around how do you declare a federal disaster area based on drought? What does that look like? because um, you still need disaster declarations to spend FEMA money. Yeah, you can spend FEMA money on drought now, but how do you get to that declaration? What does it look like? What are the thresholds? Trying to work that out right now uh, through a federal entity called the National Drought Council, which our mayors are the only non-federal member of that council. And uh, we helped pass the law that we wrote the law, actually, that got passed. Passed that established the National Drought Council. So it's, we're, we're trying to do that um, and develop a national plan to uh, mitigate uh, and, and prevent drought. We actually expect the rest of 2020 to see a worsening of drought conditions throughout the valley. Almost the entire state of Iowa is under a drought right now. We expect that to expand into Missouri, parts of Illinois and Wisconsin, Uh, As we go through the winter, right now, the winter looks like it's going to be drier for a lot of the Mississippi River Valley than wetter, unfortunately, because we really need the precip. Um, Would you think it was odd after going through 270 days of flooding? Why would you need more precipitation? That's because the summer was really hot. Temperatures are rising. So you have intense heat coupled with long, vast dry periods of 29 plus days of no rain. Uh, which is where we are right now, and you get um, a a net effect of a decrease in moisture overall. Um, And droughts tend to last longer and have a broader economic impact, ripple through the economy than floods do, Um, although they're they're catching up with each other. Um, And
0: and those droughts are so devastating because of the agriculture in this region and how important that is and just central it is to the economy, right?
1: Yeah, also drought does damage infrastructure for everybody. Um, so you, if you don't have... Infrastructure is best when it is shaded um, and cool. And when you have uh, big temperature swings from cold to hot to really hot and it stays hot that's the most damaging dynamic to built infrastructure uh it just breaks it apart so <clears throat> and, and if you add torrential precip events sp- spattered throughout that it's even worse because uh the water gets in and then it and it contracts and expands and it, it just breaks it up even more so we we're trying to get to a place where we rely more on natural infrastructure than we do built infrastructure because we just don't have the money to continue to build out, and we certainly don't have the money to maintain it. Uh, These climate impacts are shortening the life cycle of built infrastructure and increasing maintenance costs, uh, which we barely got enough money to maintain what we have today. Uh, well, yeah. well, we don't really, uh, we're, we're letting go of infrastructure because it's just too expensive using traditional spending <clears throat> and spending methods, which are basically the same since 1930. Wow. And now Unfortunately. You
0: have, I, I know that so many municipalities <laughs> and state budgets are, are getting hit by the coronavirus pandemic and, and what's happened because of that. So I mean that, that those pennies are going to be even tighter to tighter, tightly, more tightly pinched, I guess, huh?
1: Yeah, we don't have a city that's lost less than ten percent of their revenue year over year for 2020. Mm-hmm. Um, we have some cities that have lost eighty uh, percent plus. Um, wow. And uh, it's uh, yeah, it's it's been the pandemic economically has been a a a, a real a real hit uh, a real cratering event. Uh, because a, a lot of our cities depend on facility taxes for a sizable part of the revenue, like a, a casino, um, a particular venue that had to shut down for months. So none of that revenue was coming in. And uh, you're talking about cities that 60%, 50% of their annual revenue uh, or is, is based on an event like a festival. An outdoor festival, or a number of them. We have cities that um, get seventy-five percent of their revenue on three different festivals that are seasonal. All three of them had been canceled this year, so those cities are seventy-five percent down. Uh, That's rough. That's 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 hard to take. Yep. And with no stimulus, (laughs) no stimulus to uh, help us out here, it's um, it's it's a it's in a tough place yeah absolutely. Uh, you mentioned
0: uh, of your kind of programs the the clean Water program, and I wanted to hear a little bit more about that. Um, I know nutrient pollution is is one of the you know the biggest issues for the Mississippi River um, and it has its impacts all the way down in the Gulf of Mexico. Um, what's what What does your clean water program do and and how does it try to focus on nutrient pollution issues?
1: Yeah, so assuming that we have a functional EPA with a uh, a supported enforcement division, uh, nutrient loading is our biggest problem. Um, Thanks to the Trump administration, that's changing. Now we're back to the good old days where heavy metals and toxins are becoming a problem again as they relax the um, protocols Uh, and standards for coal companies, especially coal companies, uh, energy companies, and uh, what we would consider dirty manufacturing. Um, Now, you know, we haven't had to deal with zinc and mercury, lead, and and PCBs for a while. Uh, But as they relax those regs, we will. And those are much more dangerous. Uh, that's a much bigger problem. But as of right now, as of today, nutrient loading is our biggest aquatic threat um, off of the vast agricultural landscape. Uh, it It, it uh, is also the biggest threat to the Gulf of Mexico and the complex ecosystem that is supported down there, uh, because that's where you have the hypoxia um, zone. Um, uh, 15,000 square miles of, uh, excuse me, 5,000 square miles of, uh, of hypoxic, uh, water area just uh, from the, from the mouth of the river on out into the Gulf. And much of that is caused what comes out of Illinois, Wisconsin, Iowa, Missouri, the big ag states. Um, and we, we, you know, we have We have mayors that are full-time farmers. Wow. So, and we have cities where there are farms inside the city or surrounding the city. So agriculture uh, and the manufacturing that is supported by agriculture in the basin is a big part of our economy. In fact, if you take agriculture and manufacturing together, it is the biggest part of our economy along the Mississippi River, especially when it comes to grains like soy. And uh, so we need that economy and we need agriculture. Uh, we are the largest food producing river basin on earth. For, for, for nutrient loading, uh, we've been working on a number of uh, avenues. One is to use our own procurement authority to select for commodities growing sustainably within the basin. Uh, by developing a nutrient reduction procurement standard. It's a bit of a mouthful, but uh, working with big manufacturing companies, food manufacturing companies, we are developing a, a procurement standard that allows our cities and counties, because uh, a lot of the food purchase is, is, uh, is handled at the county level uh, for us, um, uh, to purchase goods, of uh, finished goods that uh, use commodities where the um, commodity is produced sustainably on acreage. Mm-hmm. Now you have to have a number of partners in the supply chain to make that practical. Uh, and you have to have you have to be working with manufacturers that are committed to that line of work inside their product lines uh, and that they want to make it a systemic part of their um, of their business. And we do have companies like that. We are partnering with them, General Mills, for example. They have they have product lines that they are committed to improving the sustainability from acreage to shelf um, uh, around nutrient reduction. Uh, so creating those partnerships really enables us to select for and incentivize uh, farms that are uh, are are doing that work. Um, another big piece of our uh, clean water work is uh, also increasing the amount of monitoring um, that and surveillance that we have around our water quality. So we partnered with USGS, uh, and American Queen steamboat company to deploy the nation's first private-carried nutrient sensor. This is a, uh, a nutrient super gauge that monitors and reads uh, pH, temperature, amount of nitrogen in the water. It's owned and operated by USGS, uh, and they maintain it, and they, they house uh, the data and receive the data from it, but it's placed on a cruise vessel. It's on a cruise vessel and it's made parts plugged into the the vessel's water system. So as the water is taken up out of the river, it goes through the nutrient gauge, super gauge, before it goes to the onboard cleaning and purification system so that the boat itself can use it for drinking water and cooling water um, for uh, the folks that are on board, the 400 people that are are cruising. Uh, So we're expanding that into more cruising companies, uh, and we're going to have more super gauges deployed up and down the river. This will get us as close as we've ever been to real-time nutrient monitoring net for the entire Mississippi River, which is the ultimate goal. One day uh, we hope to get there, but this is the next step.
0: Wow. That's really cool. That's great science. And that's, so USGS has really kind of, uh, helped to help to support that and make it possible and drive that work. Huh? um, very interesting. How do, going back to what you said before about, uh, you know, nutrient pollution and, and ultimately the big impacts down in the Gulf of Mexico, um, the mayors and other people up river, you know, way up, way up the Mississippi, um, it's, I imagine it's, what's their motivation to be concerned about what's happening in the Gulf of Mexico? Or do they care about nutrient pollution because it's an issue even in their local waterways? Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, so, well, mayors in different parts of the river, uh, they see it all as one system. Okay. Uh, so you've got, uh, for instance, so the mayor of St. Cloud, I think he put it best. He said, you know uh, St. Cloud, Minnesota. I care about what's going on in New Orleans because the companies that are headquartered in my city operate commodities out of the port of New Orleans. Um, I, I care because the cruising industry, um, that is headquartered in Louisiana that moves people up and down the Mississippi river, including into Minnesota benefits his town. Hmm. So these are interconnected economies. Uh, and then, of course, the mayors below big cities in the upper part of the Mississippi River want to work with those mayors and care about it uh, because what they put in the river, the mayors in the south have to deal with. They they have to deal with the consequences. So, and, and the mayors up in the north and the middle part of the river, they see. The, the number of problems that their colleagues in the South have to deal with is a direct reflection on their performance where they are in their own hometowns. So, uh, is very much, everyone is very much interconnected and everyone is very much, uh, interdependent on a, uh, healthy, ecologically sound river, uh, that needs to perform economically well. Yeah. Um, Aside
0: from the nutrient pollution and, and these two uh, very interesting programs you've, you, and the sensors that you mentioned, um, are there any other kind of uh, successes or solutions or exciting developments happening on the, the waterfront that you could share?
1: Yeah, so we've, we've just deployed two environmental impact bonds along the Mississippi River as a pilot, one in Memphis and one in New Orleans. And we did that through partnering with an organization called Quantified Ventures. Quantified Ventures is a finance firm that uh, developed and invented environmental impact bonds. And what they basically do is um, they go in and monetize an environmental improvement in your city. And they sell that monetization out on the open bond market. Um, This takes some expertise Uh, And it takes a rather innovative approach to uh, financial contracts and agreements and instruments. Um, But they've been able to do this in other cities like Atlanta and Baltimore and in Ohio. And we wanted to uh, see if we could make that work along our river valley. And we're doing that right now in Memphis and New Orleans. We'll see how the bonds that come out of the projects of those two cities, how they perform. And if the perspective is positive with a return that we can replicate in other cities, we're going to do that. Now, it has to be a certain scale here. Um, Projects need to be at least $5 million. Um, If they're not that size, then the scalability just isn't there. And and these aren't really sellable on the bond market. But, you know we think that this is an innovative finance option for environmental improvements that normally wouldn't happen but for the instrument. So, and that's because, because these are um, non-conventional solutions to hard infrastructure issues, selling these things on the open bond market through traditional municipal bond products would be more expensive we would be above that 3.5 to 4% mark because it would be added risk. But if we do it through the environmental impact bond model, we're able to reduce that risk, bring the borrowing costs down where it's municipal bond compliant, around the 3.2% cost ratio, which is what we can afford as cities. And that makes this project possible. Otherwise, it would just be too expensive, uh, because folks, investors would look at it and go, mm, "That's not what you normally do, and it's risky." So I'm going to make it. I'm going to charge you more. Well,
0: it sounds that's like a, really, a big
1: benefit for us.
0: Yeah, it sounds like a very innovative way to try to get more of those financial resources that are needed uh, in the face of, you know, needing to upgrade so much infrastructure and deal with disasters and and have these tough budgets. Post, you know because of the coronavirus and so forth. That's a very interesting one to keep an eye on. Um, great. Uh, the other thing I wanted to ask you about, just kind of lastly, was uh, the focus on river culture and heritage uh, and why, um, why that's, that's important. Um, you know, I think the Mississippi is a very special place and has a, an incredible history, but I wanted to, to hear a little bit about why the, ma- the mayors and, of these cities and towns uh, have that as one of the priorities for this initiative.
1: Yeah, you know, we we have um, we have a unique heritage and culture along the Mississippi River um, for our cities because our cities exist because of the river. You don't really see that along the coasts. Um, Along the coasts, you know, you have you may have colonial towns from the Revolutionary War period, um, which are fantastic to visit. But, uh, you know, you'll have dueling identities there Hmm. um, because that was before our nation was a nation. Mississippi River is uniquely American. Uh, It is the crossroads of our of of all the time periods of American expansion, American uh, identity, American ingenuity. Um, It it. It is the place where you can see uh, a colonial past with the big powers of France, Britain, and Spain, coupled with a, uh, a preserved Native American heritage, as well as a, um, uh, the e- expansionist uh, piece of American history where America really began to find itself uh, on the, in the frontier, the Western frontier. Uh, so, the Mississippi River was the big mid continent moment where uh, America began to look like America uh, as we know it today. And we want to conserve all of that. And to tell you the truth, Travis, that is under siege right now because of the disasters that we're facing. Hmm. Um, our mayors are highly motivated to stay by the river. Uh, hmm. You have probably heard about this uh, national retreat from climate vulnerable areas. Mm. This would be, especially in coastal zones, like Miami, for instance. You know, mm-hmm. Miami is like ground zero for sea level rise. According to the US Army Corps of Engineers, Miami is the first city that will need to be abandoned or removed. Um, in order to accommodate a rising ocean. We do not see that as part of our future along the Mississippi River. Um, Folks have said to us, why don't you just pick up some of your towns that are flooded every year and move them?
0: Hmm.
1: Well, that's because if we move them, we don't have a town anymore. And because we are intrinsically connected to that Mississippi River. So our mayors have recommitted themselves to a new paradigm, And that paradigm is we're no longer going to try and uh, form the river to our cities. We're now going to form our cities to the river. Whatever the river wants to do, we will accommodate it. We will not try to use engineering options to make the river accommodate us. Um, We believe that it is that important to uh, preserve that heritage the tourism and outdoor recreation economy is the second largest economy on the Mississippi River. It's only eclipsed by manufacturing. So we, we must maintain that destination draw. Uh, and the way we do that is we adapt to the river. We don't try to make the river adapt to us anymore. And that, that means working outside of our city jurisdictions, uh, across a vast agricultural landscape, and it means our cities uh, unifying uh, behind one chorus, uh, which we've been able to do. One of the things that we have proposed to Congress is a resilience revolving loan fund. This is a new innovation. Um, revolving loan funds are not new, but ones for specifically adaptation and resilience activity, that is new. And then we're happy to say that our bill passed in the House in July. Uh, we are hopeful it will pass in the Senate before the uh, the end of uh, 2020, uh, probably in the lame duck session. And uh, so we're excited about having these new innovative tools to help us do exactly that. Help us live with the river instead of making the river live with us.
0: Yeah fantastic stuff. Uh, that's, that's motivational. I think that that's, that's really cool. It's it's a big challenge and a long way to go, but that's a, an incredible vision. Uh, well, Colin, I appreciate all the time and the perspective on the Mississippi and those rivers and towns. And I look forward to doing a lot of future episodes, uh, looking at looking closer at a bunch of these issues,
1: but thank you so much. Well, thank you, Travis. Great to be here. Appreciate it.